And we revel in that and we are uh, mindful of the fact, Father, that this, this creation brings glory to You and, and brings praise to You, Father, in all that it does. And we want to join in with creation, Father, in recognizing You as the supreme value of all that, that there is in all of the universe. We want You to be the Lord of our hearts, the King of our souls. And we want all of Your beauty and Your grace and Your love and holiness, all of Your righteousness to, to overtake our hearts and our minds, our souls, our body, all that we are, Father, to reflect the greatness of Your being in us. Help us to be transformed into the likeness of the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And we pray that as we study tonight, Father, this, this, uh, this obscure passage out of Judges, that You will help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear in order to be blessed by this text. And we pray this with all of our heart in the name of Jesus. Amen. 1989, uh, John Irving published uh, a book entitled A Prayer for Owen Meany, which was uh, turned into a movie in the late 1990s entitled Simon Birch. Uh, the book, one of my favorite books, uh, uh, pieces of non of uh, fiction that I've ever read, uh, really one of my favorite books. It's uh, the story of uh, two little boys growing up in Gravesend, New Hampshire, the 1950s and the 1960s. Owen Meany was born prematurely. He grows up uh, with a diminutive body. He has sort of this falsetto uh, voice. Uh, you get the idea that as he's described in the book that his, his voice is broken. He is, he is very short and very small, and he's not much to look at, although he's highly intelligent. And all his life growing up in Gravesend, Owen Meany thinks that there's this great purpose that God has for his life, that he will do something heroic, that he will save lives, which considering who he is physically seems very, very unlikely, except to his friend John. Yet at the end of the book, all of the aspects of Owen's life, from the sound of his voice to the size of his body, come into play as he saves the life of a group of Vietnamese orphaned children during the Vietnam, uh, the Vietnam War. And it's precisely because of how he has made that He is able to deliver them from death. Which brings us to the book of Judges. Joshua has, as you know, led the people into the land and they have conquered much of it, but still much remains to do. Joshua, as you know, is a human being. He will not live forever. And eventually he dies, leaving the people for the very first time without a clear-cut leader to lead them into the further work and the deeper work of, of taking the land. They have always had Moses. They have always had Joshua to lead them. And these are the ones that have cut the path for them and have given them their vision and their destruction. But now, without their leaders, they enter into this half-hearted life of faith. And that half-heartedness is like a door to their heart that is not quite shut. Now, if you've ever been out to the country or, or to a ranch, you've seen these storm doors or these screen doors to a house or to a, a, to a workshop that... If you're not really, really careful, when you shut them, they don't shut all the way. And they leave just enough open that they allow bugs in, especially mosquitoes. And you don't see the mosquitoes coming in until they buzz your ear or they land on you. In the same way, spiritually speaking, the idols of judges begin to wander in through that open door of the hearts of the people of Israel. And that's the nature of the idols. Many times you don't see them at first. In fact, you probably don't even know they're around until they land on you and do their damage. And this is what has happened to Israel. 
half-hearted means half-open, half-closed. And this oft-repeated cycle begins to play throughout their history again. The people drift off into idolatry. They become very, at times they are rebellious, at other times they are just faithless towards God. The, the passion that they feel towards God is diminished because the energy and the passion that should be given to God in this exclusive relationship is siphoned off to the, uh, to the idols. The Lord becomes angry. Israel becomes oppressed by her enemies. They cry out to God in repentance and in a cry for help. God raises up a Savior, a savior or a liberator or a peace restorer. And peace is restored to the land for a certain number of years, and then the cycle repeats itself. And this, again, is where we find Israel. In verse 11 of Judges 3, the land had peace for 40 years because of the work of Othniel, the son of Kenaz, the, um, the judge. But then, after a number of years, as happens with Joshua, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Othniel had brought the people out from under the oppression of Cushan Rishathaim, the king of Aram, Naharaim, there is peace in the land, but now Othniel has died. And Israel, in the very next verse, in verse 12, there's no gap. In verse 12, they begin to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. And King Eglon of Moab, along with some of Israel's historical enemies, the Ammonites and the Amalekites, oppress as they join forces. They oppress and bear down on Israel like an anvil. And Israel cries out to God, and God sends a deliverer by the name of Ehud. But Ehud is different. Othniel is is sort of the prototypical warrior leader. Ehud is different. Ehud is a left-handed man. Now, that doesn't really strike us as anything earth-shattering or noteworthy, which is a clue to ask, why in the world? That's in the text. Well, left-handedness, unfortunately, as you know, has experienced a hard history in our world. Within the Hebrew uh, people, they associated good things with the right hand. God always swears by His right hand. Pleasures are at the right hand of God. The chosen one sits at the right hand of God. The right hand was the hand of power. It was, the, it was the, the, the arm and the hand of strength. In other cultures, shaking right hands was a way to show that there were no weapons in that hand in which to, uh, to attack the person you were shaking hands with. Uh, there's this infamous 19th century Italian physician by the name of Cesare Lambroso who identified left-handedness as a mark of pathological behavior, savagery, and criminality. So basically, this guy was saying, if you got a left hand, you're guilty. Now, one of the ways, and it's sort of interesting, it's not, uh, it's not necessarily the most popular way that you would refer to the left hand in, in Brazil, but you would refer to the left hand sometimes as the Mount Sinistro or the sinister hand. Left-handedness is not all that popular, all that good in the ancient world and sometimes even in the modern world. The Hebrew of this text is literally that Ehud was shut of his right hand. Uh, Josephus, in writing about the Jewish history, says that probably what this meant is that he was best skilled with his left hand. The Septuagint and the Vulgate seem to think that this means ambidextrous. The problem is, is that when you find this same word translated in other places, like Psalm 69, verse 16, this word iter means to shut down or to close down or to clamp down. Robert Bowling, in his commentary, says it's, rest- it's restriction in his right hand, which means that Ehud was most likely a man whose right hand was maimed or disabled in such a way that he had to rely on his left hand. And here is um, a bit of the irony. 
Othniel is the prototypical uh, warrior military leader. Ehud is the surprise, especially coming as he does at a time when there was, uh, in a sense, a degree of cruelty in the response of people to left-handed human beings. Where Othniel is everybody's choice, no one would guess that Ehud would be the next judge. So this tells us a little bit about deliverers and the delivered. Number one, you always expect the unexpected deliverer. You always expect the unexpected deliverer. In Judges chapter 3, verse 15, the Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. They arrive, they present the tribute Israel has sent to him. This gives Eglon ample opportunity to see that Ahud is a left-handed and probably not much of a threat when it comes to, to his, his, his manhood. He's not somebody to be feared. He is left-handed after all. He is not going to be a danger. And after presenting the tribute to Eglon, they turn back. They arrive at the stone of Gilgal in verse 19. And this is where Ehud sends the bearers of the tribute on back to Israel. But Ehud does a U-turn and he goes back to Eglon. And he whispers into the king's ear, I have a secret message for you. Eglon dismisses everyone because he's not anticipating that a disabled man in his thinking is to be a danger. It's a big mistake. And what happens is that Ehud has concealed an 18-inch dagger on his right thigh. There's a commentator by the name of Wilcock who, on writing about this passage, says, if Ehud cannot wield a sword in his right hand, all assume he cannot wield a sword at all. It's because of his deformity that he presents no security risk to the Moabite Eglon. And so then in verse 1, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade and his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out and the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them and he makes his escape. And then in verse 29, that day Moab was made subject to Israel and the land had peace for how many years? Eighty years. Ehud continues a pattern of deliverance coming from unexpected sources. An 80-year-old shepherd from the desert of Midian by the name of Moses, who's been on the land for 40 years, leads Israel out of bondage to Egypt. Later, there's a barren woman from the hill country of Ephraim by the name of Hannah, who will bring a son by the power of God by the name of Samuel into the world, and he will be a tremendous spiritual influence on Israel. But the irony is, here is a woman who cannot have children, who is going by the power of God, give birth to God's man. And it's years down the road that this very Samuel will show up at this little out-of-the-way bird south of Jerusalem and anoint a son of Jesse that wasn't on anybody's radar at the time. You know, when you, when you think about that, uh, that text in 1 Samuel, there's just something so unspectacular about David at that moment that even his own dad cannot even fathom the fact that this guy might be my son, this David might be king one day. It is so unfathomable to him that he does not even call him out from the pastures to come in and to pass in the line in front of Samuel. But it would be out of this David's line that the most unexpected deliverer would come the Messiah. The Messiah would come from the ranks of the unspectacular poor. He's born to a young woman by the name of Mary in this obscure, uh, from the obscure village of Nazareth. In fact, Nazareth is so obscure and, and so unlikely. What is it that Nathaniel says when Philip says, I think we found the Messiah? He says, Nazareth? 
Can anything good come from there? And yet Isaiah, centuries before his birth, gives everyone a heads up to not look for Israel's ultimate Savior among the razzle-dazzle ranks of the beautiful elite. Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men. It sounds like the prototypical leader, right? He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Like Ehud, Christ, through his own weakness, crushes the enemy that we can never defeat on our own. But it brings up a question. Why in the world a left-handed deliverer? Why the left-handed deliverer? Why is that such an important thing for us to see in this text out of Judges chapter 3? Well, as I said earlier, the mentioning of Ehud's left-handedness is, is mentioned for a reason. It's, it's not mentioned because it would be considered a virtue. It would not be mentioned because it was considered to be even normal. It's mentioned to slow us down and to ask the question, what in the world is going on here? If we were reading this with with ancient eyes, we would get to that passage that referred to Ehud as a left-handed man, and we would stop right there and begin to wonder, what in the world is God doing? Why in the world has God chosen a left-handed man like Ehud to be the judge that is going to deliver his people Israel out of the hands of the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Amalekites? Why a left-handed man? That is, that's not the normal. That's not the expected thing. God uses the unheralded and the underwhelmed to underscore that He is the one that does the saving. God uses the left-handed, to underscore the fact that only God is able to save a people who in themselves are left-handed when it comes to their own salvation. Ehud not only reminds us that God and only God saves, but that we ourselves are left-handed. And Paul would make this point centuries later to the folks in the church of Corinth who were struggling with greatness with their visions of what really was a, 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 a grand and great human being. He says in verse 26, right there at the very beginning of the letter, he says, of, of the letter, he says, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. 
God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before Him. It is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. See what he's saying. He's saying foolish things and weak things are what have brought you into Christ. So that no one may boast. It's Christ who has become the wisdom from God. Let no one who let and then at the very end, verse thirty one, and this is the point, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Now what is what is the problem with Israel? What is the problem with Israel? It's that they they have this half-heartedness. They recognize God and they see God and they, they, they go through the worship of God and they go through the sacrifices that God desires. But there's not a wholeheartedness there. There's not a boasting in what it is that God has done. What is it that has happened to Israel? It's that they have grown stale in their relationship with God. They've become enamored with things that are not even in the same universe as God in terms of beauty and importance and profoundness and salvation and grace and blessing. And yet, that is what they have become enamored with. And those are the very things that have enslaved them and have become their their downfall. It is those very things that have brought them low. And they realize that there is no other way that they can get out of this enslavement to whatever it is that they're enslaved to except to cry out to God and to repent and, and to recognize God. And God brings in, 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 a, in a spectacularly surprising way His salvation to underscore the fact that He is the one who does it. In order for there to be no question in the mind of any Hebrew that it is God who is bringing forth the salvation. It's God that's bringing forth the goodness. It's God that is bringing His people to Him again. It's God that is being the, the, the source and the font of, a fount of blessing. It's God who is doing it in order for Israel to do what? To stay away from the idols. To recognize God in all of His beauty. To not be enamored with, with the, other, the other cultures and, and, and the other primitive religions, the pantheon of Canaanite gods, that in the end would enslave them and not liberate them. To do away with that in order to see the beauty of the God who is the only God, the only King, that will never enslave His people. In order for them not to boast of those things, but to boast in God. That was the purpose of an Ehud that God can save a left-handed people even with a left-handed Savior. That God, through the very things that we, would be, that we would consider weakness, able to bring about our victory and our salvation. And that's one of the ways, quite frankly, that you, you stay out of the idolatry. Is by, is by thinking as we do on, on, a, on a daily basis, that there is no way that I would ever be able to come into the presence of God if it were not for His grace. That if it were not for His mercy, if it were not for His love, if it was not for His light and His love that came beaming into my life. 
and to recognize that it is in Him that I find my ultimate significance. I find that God-shaped hole in my heart filled to the overflow of joy and peace that could never, ever, ever be touched in any way, even close, by any of the things that might attract my eye in this world. And that's part of the beauty, I think, of Judges chapter 3, is that reminder that in God using a left-handed Savior reminds us that He is the one that saves and saves us as a left-handed people who could never bring about our own salvation. David's going to lead us in a song right now. Some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. And maybe you've been struggling with that part of your life as well. And maybe tonight is the night that you stop trying to save yourself and you fall down into the grace of God who sent His Son as, as, as a human being into our world who lived without blemish, who lived without sin, who lived that perfect life and lived it perfectly in love. And in that perfect love and in that perfect life was willing to be sacrificed Himself to pay the penalty for our crimes and for our guilt so that what is righteous about Him could be passed to us and what is unrighteous about us was placed on Him. And the benefit is that now God, because of Christ's love, is able to see us as His own children, as His own son, His own daughter. And that happens when we decide that we're going to turn our life away from all of those idols and all of those those half-hearted, half-open, half-closed screen doors that have allowed the idols to come into our life and the, and the, the, the desires that have destroyed us and are destroying us. We, we've left that life and have turned towards God. And we recognize that God is not only my Creator, but He is also my King and my Lord. And I participate in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection through baptism. Meaning that as He was resurrected to newness of life, as I come up out of the waters of baptism, it is to a a, a new life that I'm being born into. And God's Spirit comes into my life and helps me to become like Jesus in all that I do. My appetites change. My affections change. The direction of my life change. The things that give me joy in this life and the things that create peace in my life are all changed. They now become the things of God that inspire and, and, and take me onto a path that is not easy at times and sometimes very, very difficult. But as we talked about this morning, is never a path that we walk alone because God is there as Father and Savior and King and Lord every step of the way. And if that describes you tonight as somebody who's wanting to make that change, as David leads us in this song, our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. Come down and talk to these, these fellas as we stand and praise God together. Over all the earth you reign on high, every mountain stream, every sunset sky, but my one request, Lord, my only aim.